don't you think about this? Have you ever heard someone say, you know, if God is real, why does he need to show me a sign? Like, like if God is real, have him part the skies and like just declare his glory to me. Or if God is real, why doesn't he do this or do that to reveal himself? You know, that's been going on for 2,000 years. That's nothing new. That, that's not a new statement that people bring up. We're going to see it in our text this morning. Even though we have seen in Scripture that parts did part, and God did declare, this is my beloved son, and you should do what he says. And yet there are still those who would say, show me a sign. If you've been with us in the Gospel of John, you know that recently Jesus fed thousands of people with two loaves of bread and five fish. Actually, two fish and five loaves of bread, excuse me. Whoop, still sat around. But what that indicated to the people was he was somebody who was able to do miraculous works. But prior to that, he was out healing people, doing all kinds of signs, and yet there would still be people who would say, he needs to show me a sign. He needs to show me something. I won't believe unless he shows me a sign. We'll see that again this morning. But church, I'm going to tell you this, that what that is called, it's called unbelief. And no sign is going to get rid of that unbelief. That as we'll see this morning, there's both a command for man to come to Jesus, to believe in Jesus, but there's also a work of God in that whole thing. That God would draw them to Jesus. So if you have your Bibles open, John chapter 6, we're going to look at verses 30 through 40. I'm going to begin reading it in verse 30. It says, so they said to him, remember, he had just done this sign. He had fed thousands of people. The next day, they're hungry again. They come unto him, and Jesus says, or they say to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? And they say, our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never hunger or shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. God, we come into this place to worship you. We worship you through the public reading of your word. We worship you through praise. And now we worship you through hearing of your word proclaimed. God, we thank you. We come into a place to stand firm on your word not the opinion of any man. But God, we pray this morning that your Holy Spirit would teach us, that you would draw us near to yourself. Help us to understand these truths this morning. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. For those of you that are note takers this morning, we are looking at three points this morning. Point number one would be true bread from heaven. Point number one, true bread from heaven. Verses 30 through 34. Point number two will be come and believe. Verses 35 and 36. 
And then eternal security in verses 37 through 40. So again, we're looking at true bread from heaven. Maybe a response to that true bread is come and believe. And then the hope that we have in that, the security that we have in that, is eternal security. So if you would, look in your Bibles with me. Let's start at verse 30. Here we have the crowd interacting with Jesus. They are hungry again. It's the following day. They had just had their fill the day before of all the bread and fish they could eat, but now they have sought him out because they're ready for another meal. And they come to him, and instead of giving them a meal, Jesus declares that he is God. And they go, oh, really? Interesting. You say you're God, and look what they say in verse 30. Then what sign do you do? They stop for a second. They had just followed him to the other side of the sea because he had just done a sign. He had just taken a small amount of food and fed thousands and thousands of people with it. They knew that he was the miracle meal maker, and that's why they followed him. But because of unbelief, they're not going to believe him as God. They just want a meal. Oh, you're going to proclaim yourself as God? What sign are you going to do? They go on and say, so that we might see and that we might believe you. Church, I'm going to tell you right now, that was not their intent. Their intent was to drag him along so that he'd feed him again. Hey, we'll tell you what you want to hear, but just give us some food. We're hungry. That's all we care about. We want physical food. And they say, Jesus, what work do you perform? And here's where their thinking is going. They're going to bring up Moses. And if some of you are familiar with Moses, the people, as they came out of Egypt, they got hungry in the wilderness. And they're like, great, you brought us out here, so we're going to starve of hunger? We were better off back in Egypt. At least we had food then. And then God provides for them miraculously. You guys remember how he provided? He sent down manna from heaven. How long, how many years did they go being provided manna from heaven? Everybody know? Good job. 40 years God was faithful to provide manna from heaven. They got to feed and see God working. But guess what? That manna was just for physical food. They got to eat as much as they wanted that day, but the next day, go out and gather it again. Eat it again. The next day they got hungry again. Jesus is going to use that example of what Moses provided you was something temporary. But what I'm providing you is something eternal. He brought down from God the Father who sent the bread from heaven. Jesus is going to say, I am the true bread of heaven. That if you eat of me, you shall never hunger again. We'll tear that up in a little bit and figure that out. But here they're asking, what sign are you going to give us? What work are you going to perform? And they go on and they say, look, uh, Luke chapter 16 tells us that Jesus says, if they do not hear Moses and the prophet, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Meaning, Jesus, I know their hearts. People say they want a sign. But there's unbelief. It doesn't matter if someone rises from the dead. They'll still excuse it. They'll say, well, that was a pretty cool trick. Can you do another one? This is what they're telling Jesus. Hey, Jesus, we saw you the day before. We saw you do that miracle with the, with the fish and the loaves. But what are you going to do for this today? What are you going to perform in front of us today? And church, all they cared about was physical food. They weren't caring about, oh, we'll actually see and believe that you are God. They're saying, give us something. This is called unbelief. John MacArthur said this. He said, unbelief is never 
satisfying. No matter how much evidence is given, unbelief is never satisfying. So, you can come up with the greatest argument to give somebody of why God exists. And they could be like, well, that was a good answer. That does not draw them to belief. We'll see as we go through this text that there has to be a divine intervention of God. That God has to break through to that unbelief and draw that man or woman unto himself. So Jesus continues in this dialogue with them. They ask him, what miracle are you going to perform? What sign are you going to give? What works are you going to do? Look at verse 31. They bring up Moses. They say, our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. This is what they knew. This is what they believed. That their forefathers for 40 years had feasted on the manna from heaven. So now Jesus comes a day earlier and provides for them one day, and they go, big deal. 40 years our forefathers ate, and you come in one day, you think you're going to impress us? We're not impressed. What work are you going to do? For those of you that are not familiar with what took place in the Old Testament, Exodus chapter 16 is where you'll find that. In Exodus chapter 16, starting in verse 4, we read, Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day. By the way, church, I didn't give you the whole chapter, but right before this, the people were grumbling and complaining and saying we're hungry. We'd rather have died in Egypt than come out here and die this way. And God responds in grace. And God says, I'm going to provide for them. Verses 14 and 15, he says, And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. And when the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread that the Lord, this is Yahweh, has given you to eat. Now, who gave it to them? Who? Yahweh. Although the Jews standing before Jesus are going to say, Moses is the one that gave it to us. And Jesus is going to point out, look, it's not Moses. It's my father that provided that for you. And again, he's going to keep saying, my father. Do you know why he says my father? Because like father, like son, he's claiming deity. He's saying, look, you've seen me, you've seen the father. So again, look at me with verse 31. Our fathers, they said, ate the man in the wilderness, as it's written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. They're basically saying, look, 40 years. 40 years, Moses, they would say, gave bread to our forefathers. And surely, if you're proclaiming to be God, you could do better than that. I mean, if Moses could do 40 years, hey, Jesus, what are you going to do for us? Now, church, they weren't interested in seeing that he was God. They were interested to see how much of this all-you-can-eat feast can we get? How much can we, can we come at him that he'll just say, okay, here's more food, here's more food, here's more food. All they cared about was the physical blessing of food. Look with me at verses 32 and 33. Jesus responds to them. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but it was my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. First thing he says, by the way, he says, it's not Moses. He said, it's my father. And my father gives you true bread. And true bread is 
he. It's not a thing. It wasn't that little flaky stuff that came down. It's he who has come to give you life. You see, in the Old Testament, manna was a shadow of the things to come. The provision of the bread from heaven was foreshadowing that Christ would come from heaven, that he would be the bread of life, that whoever would eat of him, whoever would come and believe, that they would never hunger again. And this is what Jesus is doing with these people. He's providing them, saying, I am here. I am the bread of life. Again, looking at verse 33, he says, For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. When I read that passage in Exodus, who was God providing that manna for? Anybody know? It was Israel, right? It was the Israelites. They were the ones being provided for. Jesus comes and he brings it for the world. Everybody. There's no discrimination with this spiritual bakery that's going on here. There's no discrimination. This is the true bread of heaven. And it's for Jews and it's for Gentiles. It's offered to every sinner. I want you to think about that. Jesus comes, he walks the earth, and he's known as a friend of sinners. That people would attack him and say, how could you hang out with drunkards and tax collectors? Well, guess who needs the bread of heaven? Guess who needs salvation? They do. We do. And Jesus says this true bread that's from heaven is for the entire world. There's no discrimination here. It's for everyone. And when we look ahead into the book of Revelation and we get a glimpse of heaven, look what we read in Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. John writes, After this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes. You know what that means about them? They're saved. These are his people. And they've come from every tribe, tongue, and nation. This is not only Israel anymore. This is everybody. Which for us here, as I look out, is a glorious thing. Because apart from Larry, who's Jewish, the rest of us would be in trouble. If it was only manna that would come from heaven for Israel, we'd be in trouble. But here, the true bread of heaven is for everyone. And it's not something that is for a one-time use. It's not something that's to satisfy me today and be gone tomorrow that I need more. It is to satisfy our souls for all eternity. It is a bread like no other. Jesus also said, by the way, this bread, it's given to you by the Father. That word given is important. Because most people think, what do I have to do to earn it? What must I do to earn God's favor, His merit? What, what, what works do I have to do? It is a gift. It can't be deserved. It can't be earned. It can't be purchased. As a matter of fact, in the original language, it's a love gift. You're given a love gift of salvation. So Jesus explains all of this to them. And they answer in a way that seems so good to us. Look at verse 34. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. We want what you're talking about. Do you know there's a problem here, though? They haven't the foggiest idea what he's really talking about. All they heard is there's a bread that I can eat, that I won't hunger again, and, and Jesus came to give it. Bring it on. Where's it at? 
Let's do this. Not just yesterday, not just today, but Jesus, do it every day. This is what they're asking for. They missed what the true bread of heaven was. They missed the reality of it all together. All they wanted was an all-you-can-eat feast. Let's do a repeat of yesterday. Let's have it again. But then every day would be a day of want. If that's how Jesus was to provide, every day you'd wake up and there would be a day of want. But Jesus comes to provide where our soul would be satisfied. That there would no longer be the want. That we're completely satiated with Him, the true bread of heaven. Look with me at John chapter 6. Jesus speaks of this later on in verses 49 through 50. Verse 49 through 50, Jesus says, Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. And He says, look what happened to them. They died. He says they ate. It was physical food. They ate it and they died. He says, this is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. He's saying, look, guys, you just want physical food. What good is that going to do to you? It might satisfy you today, but then you're going to digest it. You're going to be hungry again. And ultimately, there's going to come a day you're going to die. This is not eternal food. He says, but the true bread of heaven is so that you might eat of it and that you'll never die. Weigh those out. Which one do you want? Verse 58, look ahead. Chapter 6, verse 58, he says, This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread that the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. As Jesus goes through this discourse, he's going to say it over and over and over again. Have you ever had to repeat yourself? Anybody have children? Anybody a school teacher? Repeating over and over and over again. Why? Because it takes a listener some time to get it. Do you know that the Bible says that we're to love the Lord God with our heart, soul, strength, and mind 14 times? Why not just one time? Because repetition matters. Over and over through this discourse, Jesus is going to tell them, look, you guys are still thinking about physical bread. You eat physical bread, you're going to die. Eventually, you'll die. But you eat of what comes from heaven, this true bread, speaking of himself, you come and believe in that, and you have it for all eternity. That you pass from death to life, and they're missing the whole thing. This true bread that he speaks of, it's from heaven. It's not manna that satisfies just physical hunger. It's the true bread that satisfies our soul's hunger. And it's given to the world. And the world, meaning you and me and everybody else, must receive it. This gift. That brings to point number two. Point number two is titled, Come and Believe. Come and Believe. Look with me in verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Well, guess what? What's essential to life? Two things. you got to eat. And you got to drink, or you're going to die. And what was essential at that time was bread and water. Even as Israel was out in the wilderness, they cried they needed some provision. God provided them bread from heaven. Then they got thirsty. Right after God had provided all this bread for them, like, we're thirsty, we're going to die out here from thirst. It was one thing after another. And God provided water. Jesus says, look, I'm the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, 
And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. By the way, when Jesus says, I am, this is one of the first I am statements of the book of John. There are seven of them that he declares, I am. If you were with us last week, I spoke of that because God declared himself to be the great I am. In Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, God says to Moses, when Moses says, who shall I say sent us? He says, I am who I am. By the way, that's not Popeye. Okay? This is God. I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. Ego ami is the word in Greek. It's a phrase. It is I am. Jesus starts here by saying, I am the bread of life. In their ears, they should hear the phrase, I am. He's equated saying, I am God. I am the great I am. As we go through this book of John, we'll see today he's saying, I am the bread of life. In chapters 8 and 9, he says, I am the light of the world. In chapter 10, he says, I am the gate. In chapter 10 again, he'll say, I am the good shepherd. In chapter 11, he'll say, I am the resurrection and the life. In John chapter 14, he'll say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And in John chapter 15, the last of his I am, he says, I am the true one. Jesus will go through all these teaching points saying, I am. Why the statement, I am? Why can't God just give a clear, concise statement of who he is? Because you can't bottle God up like that. You can't box him up like that. He is beyond every part of reason or anything else. He is just the great I am. And as we go through this book of John, you'll see Jesus apply that I am to these various areas. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. Here he says in verse 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Physical hunger? Is he talking about physical hunger here? Meaning, if you come to Jesus, does that mean you're not going to actually, your tummy's not going to growl anymore? Is he speaking of physical hunger? Or what happens when he says, and if you believe in me, you'll never thirst. Does that mean that I won't need this water bottle? He's not talking about temporal things. He's talking about spiritual, eternal things. That as one soul would long for eternity, he's saying, I'm here to satisfy you. I'm here to bring you hope. Remember earlier, if you were here, as we were in John chapter 4, Jesus spoke to a Samaritan woman at a well. When he declared himself to be living water, and in John chapter 4, verse 14, he says, Whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And this woman says to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Do you see a correlation between what the Jews just said to him? He comes and says, Look, I'm here as the true bread of heaven. And they're like, Sir, give us this bread always. She had said the same thing. Because in her frame of mind, she was coming to the well for water. She had a thirst. In their frame of mind, they're hungry again. They got fed the day earlier. They want food. And Jesus is teaching them a spiritual truth. And it's not clicking. They're not understanding it. One of the Beatitudes, Jesus begins in Matthew chapter 5, verse 6. He said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Hungry and thirst for, for righteousness. He's speaking of spiritual matters. Not he who hungers and thirsts for water and, and for bread, but for spiritual matters. 
Because Christ has come to satisfy us. Once and for all, he is the bread of life. But he says in this verse 35, there are two things he gives. Two commands that he gives to mankind. That they must come and they must believe. There are two things you'll see. You must come and you must believe. Well, think about, put, put in your mind's eye what's going on. You had thousands and thousands, possibly over 20,000 people who got fed. I don't know how many of those thousands actually came across to follow him, but he's got this enormous crowd in front of him. Have they come to him? In a physical sense, right? They came across the sea. They got in a boat. They physically have come to him. And do they believe? Well, they at least believe he could provide some bread, right? They wouldn't be there. They wouldn't have gone on that journey. Let me ask you this. Is that the type of coming and believing that Jesus is talking about when he says come and believe? It's come for a handout. Come and get what you can get. I mean, thousands of these, they came. They believed that he could make food. I mean, that's what they're saying is, yo, Jesus, what kind of work are you going to do? You're going to outdo uh, Moses? I want to see what kind of food you can provide here. But that doesn't qualify them for this eternal life that he's speaking of. And today we have people who are very confused what it means to come to Jesus, what it means to believe in Jesus. And we've said it before, but people say, well, well, I believe in God. Well, a lot of people believe in God. But what does that mean? What does it mean when Jesus says, come to me and you will never hunger again? Believe in me and you will never thirst again. He's not saying follow me to the other side of the sea so you can get another lunch. He's absolutely not saying that. When he declares himself to be the great I am, he's declaring himself to be God. And when he says to come, he's saying come to me, meaning come to God. That's what you have to believe. That this is God. That coming to Christ is believing that he is God. Most of you know by now, John chapter 20, verse 31, John says, this is why I've written this. This is why I record this gospel, that you might believe in God, his son, whom he sent, and that by believing in him, you might have life and life eternal. It's not so you can get another lunch. It's not so you can be uh, satisfied for the day, but to come to Christ when he says you need to come, to come is to place your complete trust and reliance in him. And in him alone, to come to Christ, to affirm that he alone is the way to salvation. You know, I've heard people, you probably have too, that say, I just want to cover my bases. You know, I'll take a little bit of Jesus, take a little bit of Buddha, a little bit of Muhammad, and, and, and I just want to cover the bases in case one of them's right or wrong. I got them all. That's not what Jesus is talking about. He's not saying throw a little idol of Jesus in your backpack and say that you've got Jesus. He's saying turn completely to him to come to him, to follow him. Remember, there's thousands of people before him when he declares these things. They have seen his miracles. They've heard of the signs and wonders that he has done. And he turns to them and says, you must come and you must believe. I want you to think about this. If you're in the crowd, you've just seen Jesus the day before divide up these loaves and these fish to feed thousands of people. You've heard of all the stories where he's going around and healing people. What would you do when Jesus said, come and believe? Do you think you would turn in faith and go, yes, this is him. This is the Messiah. Because as Jesus declares in the very next verse, 
They didn't believe. They didn't believe. Jesus had done all this right before them. Look at verse 36. Jesus turns to them and says, I say to you that you have seen me, and yet you don't believe. Now, for many of us, that's so hard to understand. I mean, so many of us would say, man, if God showed me a sign like that, I for certain would believe. The reality is, no, you wouldn't. Because here are thousands of people who have witnessed this, and yet Jesus turns to them and says, you have seen, and yet you don't believe. So here's the reality. Seeing is not believing. Seeing is not believing. These people had seen the true bread of heaven. They had seen him face to face, and yet they did not believe. And how is that possible? People today will say, if God just shows me a sign, I'll believe. It's a crowd of thousands of people. They saw it. They didn't believe. You know, some people will say, if God just showed me that he was real, I would believe. The reality is that's wrong. It's wrong and it's wrong. Nor are they even looking for a sign. It's just more excuses. Just more excuses to push away the truth. You know, these are words of, of a hardened heart. The words of unbelief. John chapter 3, we studied it previously. We read in verse 19, Jesus says, this is the judgment, that light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. I'm going to ask you personally, before God drew you unto himself and you came to him in faith and repentance, you remember when that Christian was around that you're like, I don't really want to hang out with them. I, I feel bad about myself. Or maybe you hang out with somebody and they say something, they go, oh, I'm sorry, pardon my French. And you're thinking, well, that's not French, but okay. Why the conviction? Why, why all of a sudden do they feel like that is not okay to speak that way? Because of light. And light exposes darkness. And Jesus said, here's the reality is that those who are wicked and pursuing wicked things, they hate the light. They don't want their sins to be right in front of them. They'd rather go la, 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 like this. And I don't see anything. Hear nothing, see nothing, speak nothing. I don't know anything. And they rather choose to walk in ignorance. Wait, I have a question. Is there a contradiction here? Because in John chapter 3, Jesus says, Everybody who does wicked things doesn't come to the light. Well, let me ask you this. Who in here has ever done a wicked thing? Well, thank you for your honesty and raising the hand. Um, the reality of Scripture says that all of us have. That all of us have rebelled against the Holy God, done what was right in our own eyes, and, and have done what is wicked in His eyes. Now, the five of you actually testified before God that that is you. The rest of us understand that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So hold on to that. If all have sinned, and Jesus said, those who walk in darkness, they're not going to come to the light. But then just now in John chapter 6, verse 35, he says, I'm the bread of life, come. How are you going to come? How does that happen? Now, now is Jesus like going against what he said earlier? I mean, did, did he speak this in error? Because before he says, no one comes because they don't want their sin to be exposed. And now he says, hey, by the way, 
Come. You guys see what's going on here? I mean, how do we work this out? Do we call Jesus a liar or a lunatic or like he just speaks out both sides of his mouth? Or is there something else going on? Because those who do wicked things do not come to the light. But again, he says, whoever would come to me shall not hunger. Whoever would believe in me shall never thirst. And we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've all turned aside and done what we thought was right in our own eyes. And yet, Jesus says we're to come to him. I see a big problem here. I don't know if you see it, but I see a problem. The problem I see is if I'm walking in darkness, that's the last place I want to go is to be exposed. I don't want to go anywhere near the light. If you happen to have cockroaches anywhere, they don't like the light. As a matter of fact, you might walk into the kitchen or something, flip a light on, and they go everywhere. That's like a sinner. Who doesn't want to come near the light lest they be exposed and run off and hide? But Jesus says, here's your hope. Your hope is to come to me. You go, well, but there's there's the internal work going on. I, I can't come because then I'm exposed. But that's the only place I can go is to Christ because he's the one that can save me. Look, th- this topic is way deeper than what we're going to cover this morning. As a matter of fact, by God's grace, next week we'll do a deep dive into this topic. It's called the sovereign grace of God. Sovereign grace. And we'll look at it next week, Lord willing, together. But understanding this, that it is man's responsibility to come to Christ. That man is commanded to come to Jesus. To come and believe. To come and receive Jesus as Lord and Savior. It's man's responsibility. Man is commanded to come. Man cannot sit there and say, well, pastor said that I've got a sin problem and I can't come to Jesus. Jesus commanded all of us to come to him. That's the commission goes out to us. Is come to Jesus. And yes, we are all sick. And yes, we're all sick because we are S-I-N positive. And in that S-I-N positive frame, we are still to come to Jesus. But the natural response of somebody who's sin positive is to flee from Christ. It's to stay away, not come near the light. But Jesus makes no excuses not to come to him. He doesn't bring that up. He doesn't say, oh, by the way, you can't come to me. He says, if you would come to me, you will never hunger again. If you would believe in me, you will never thirst again. Those words coupling together to come to him, to believe in him. The same thing, to come, to trust in him. And there are those who would say something like, well, I'm not ready. I'm not ready to come to Christ. I mean, I need to get right first. I I need to take care of some stuff first. You know what that's called? Excuses. It's pushing away. It's making up reasons not to believe, to stay in your unbelief. I, for one, have been one who has said this when I was walking in darkness. Someone approached me about a Bible study, and I said, well, I don't believe the Bible. It's been translated way too many times, and it just says what man wants it to say. And this wise person said, wow, you must have studied the Bible a whole lot to come up with that conclusion. Of which I said, uh, 
because I had never studied it. But I didn't want to come to the light. I would be exposed in the light. I was living in darkness, and I was enjoying my darkness. So I thought. And yet, there are those who will say, I don't believe in the Bible. Here's another excuse. Or those who would redirect. You ask them about Christ. You ask them about their position, where they're at. Have they turned to him? And they say, wait, 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 wait. What about those people in that far-off country who, who have never heard the gospel? What about them? You guys been there? You know what I'm talking about? Just redirection. You're talking to them about their eternal salvation, and they go, what about that person I don't even know about? They don't care about that person. They've never invested a penny in that person or done anything else. It's just an excuse. They don't want to come to the light. So they throw out another redirect. And some, just like Jesus' crowd, demand a sign. They said, hey, what signs are you going to do? What work are you going to perform for us? And some say, okay, if God is real, then let him you know, throw a lightning bolt down right here or whatever they ask. I've actually heard people say, let God strike me dead by a lightning bolt. Well, that wouldn't really be helpful for your salvation. That doesn't help. I mean, if God did that, that's immediate judgment. You die and you immediately go to judgment. So some people ask for the craziest things. You know, if God is real, then let him strike me dead. Well, but if God is loving and he cares about your soul, he's going to be patient with you. It's crazy what people ask for. Their hearts are hardened. And because their hearts are hardened, there needs to be a divine intervention. You guys remember when we started off this book of John, in John chapter 1, in verses 12 through 13, we read, But to all who did receive Christ, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Look at verse 13. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. It means this was nothing of themselves. This was entirely a thing of God. That God divinely intervened in their life and caused them to be born again. In chapter 3 of John, there's that, that great interaction between Jesus and the ruler of Nicodemus. And he says, what do I do? What must I do to be saved? And Jesus says, look, unless you're born again, unless you're born again, you can't see the kingdom of God. That was in John chapter 3, verse 3. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Well, church, in my eyes, and in the way that I'm able to reason this out, it seems like an impossible thing. If in my sin I am not willing to come to Christ, then how will I ever be born again? Because Christ said, you must come to me. You must believe in me. But here's the beauty of our God. He is the one that's doing the work. He is the one working behind the scenes. That in my mind, I have to wrestle through these things. But it's God who is the author and the finisher of my faith. He is the one that begins it, and he is the one who will finish it. Jesus clearly commands all, come and believe. He says, it's your responsibility. You can't excuse it on anybody else. You can't excuse it on your condition of being SIN positive. He says, you must come and believe. It's your responsibility, and you're accountable to come and believe. Yet, behind the scenes of the whole thing is God's sovereign grace working and drawing people to Christ. How is it that the gospel would go forward, and some people will hear it and say, that is the most foolish thing that I've ever heard. And yet, others in the same crowd who were dead in their sins would hear it and say, that is the hope that I need. 
That is the way to salvation. This is the Christ I must come to. How does that happen? The same message. Because God is working behind the scenes. And God is drawing man and woman unto himself. A verse, Lord, we will cover next week. Much more detail. John chapter 6, verse 44. Jesus says, no one can come to me. By the way, that word no one, if you take it apart in the Greek, it, it means no one. Really, it really does. I mean, I, I had to put some Greek skills to the test and bring up that, but it means no one. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. So here's the personal question. What about you? Have you come to Christ? Have you come to him as Lord and God? Or is it only coming to him for a handout? Is it like the crowds who would say, I just need something for now. I need to get through this day, and I just need a fix for today. Hey, God, will you help? Or have you come to him as the true bread of heaven, as the bread of life who's come to satisfy your soul, that all would be well with your soul? Have you placed your trust and your complete reliance on him? And perhaps in this room, even those of you that attend week after week after week, perhaps right now, the Spirit of God would draw you to himself. You know, church membership isn't what gets you into heaven. You guys realize that? Even faithful church attendance isn't what gets you into heaven. Now, those things are good, and they're healthy for the church, and for your development, for God's glory, but those aren't the requirements to get into heaven. What is required is that you come and believe and that you fully come to him. The one who lived in your place. Look, I was sharing this morning in Bible study that if you open up your Bible and you part it at where the Old Testament is, all of this is the same God as this. There is not a God of anger and judgment and wrath here and a God of love and grace over here. What is true, though, is over here, you have people who are of, under the law. And you know what the law was there for? To show you couldn't do it. That you couldn't do enough good to earn the favor of God. That you are guilty. That I am guilty. That there's no way that I can uphold the law. So then on this part, we see Jesus, the Messiah come. Who comes in truth and grace. Who extends grace to us who would come to him and believe that Jesus would come and he would live his life perfectly, fulfilling the whole law, all of this, in our place. He did it. He lived it. He did it in our place. And then he would die in our place as well. That instead of us having to go and experience the wrath of God on us for all eternity, that Jesus would go have the wrath that was rightly due to us poured out upon him. That we could go free. That all the debt that we had, all the wages of sin that was stored up, that all of that was wiped out on the cross. But it didn't end there. Three days later, he rose from the grave. And in rising from the grave was for our justification, that we would be clothed in his righteousness. That we could stand before the Father just if we'd never sinned. But it doesn't end there. And Jesus continues today to intercede for us, to pray for us. This is our Jesus. Have you responded to that Jesus? Have you come to that Jesus? Have you placed your faith in that Jesus? 
Do you believe in those truths? Because if you do, guess what? A miracle has taken place in your life. Divine intervention has taken place. That God has taken the scales as they were off your eyes to be able to see these spiritual truths. The veil has been torn off, and now you can see and receive these things. That, my friends, is a gift of God. It is a glorious thing. So for those of you here this morning that say, well, I'm not so sure I've come to him and believed in him that way, then the question is, what are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? If you know and you hear that it's Jesus, who is God in human flesh, come to earth to live in your place, to die in your place, to raise in your place, and to intercede for you, what would hold you back? What we read today, those who would come and believe is, I don't want to be exposed. Well, the Bible says that all of us are naked and bare before him who we must give an account. So the reality is we're all exposed already. And yet when we come to Christ, we come out of judgment and we go into life. If we stay where we are and think, I'm just going to hide for a while, guess what? When judgment comes, it's going to be for all eternity. There is not a second chance. For some people say, you know what, I'll just stand before God and I'll say, now I see you, so now I believe, let me in. It doesn't work that way. It's appointed for man once to die and then comes judgment, not a second chance. Scriptures say. But here's the beautiful thing. When you come and you believe and you trust in Christ, it is something that happens that Jesus then secures your salvation. Because I'm looking at you guys, you're looking at me, and if it was up to us to make sure we secured our salvation, we'd blow it. I mean, how, how righteous do we have to walk in order to secure our salvation? Did you have a wicked thought on the way to church this morning? Are you married and you thought about your spouse in an unloving way? Did you lose your salvation? Look, here's the reality. Ephesians chapter 2, we studied this morning in our Bible study. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, but God made us alive together with him. It was because of his love and the way he loved us that he would make us alive in Christ. But he did it for a purpose, that he's created us for good works that we should walk in them. Our lives should not be the same as they were before. That when we come to him, when we receive him, there's a transformation in our lives. And that transformation should be evident. And because it's evident, we also have the assurance of point number three, which is eternal security. Eternal security. Look, I have sat with a lot of people who sit and wonder, can I lose my salvation? And I've heard this, this doctrine, they would say, of once saved, always saved. Does that mean that I'm good and I'm, I'm done and all is well and I don't have to worry about anything? Well, even the Apostle Paul would tell the church in Rome, examine yourselves and see whether you're in the faith. Which means there should be fruit that's evident that you are a believer. There should be fruit in your life that there's evidence of the Spirit of God that dwells in you. That you're not who you used to be. And the presence of the Spirit of God is what gives you assurance. But look what's going on behind the scenes. John chapter 6. Verse 37, Jesus says, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Well, some of you wrestle with this idea of the doctrine of, of election. The Bible says that God gets to choose who he'll have mercy on. That before the foundations of the earth, God has chosen. By the way, it's not because he's looked way down the road and said, 
all right, Robert's going to choose me one day, so I'll pick him. It doesn't even make sense on choosing somebody. It's before anything else that God in his foreknowledge has already selected and chosen the elect. Now, I will tell you this, as a pastor and as, as a brother and sister to you, I don't understand all that. I, I don't get all that takes place. All I know is I believe God. God said this is it, and I go, okay, I don't understand it. But here he says, Jesus says, look, the Father gives me. He has chosen some and given me those people. And he said, they will come to me. They're going to come. And some of you would say, well, pastor, if that's true, people are going to come to Christ anyway. Shouldn't we just go party and live it up, and then maybe on our deathbed we'll, we'll come to him? Well, do you know that right now you should be enjoying eternal life? which means through the trials and sufferings of life, you could still have a peace that surpasses all understanding, that you could still have a joy that is unknown to the world, that by going and pursuing sin, all we're doing is stacking up consequences that we have to live with and bear with. You know, sin always seems enticing, but there's always a payment for it. For the unbeliever, the payment would be death. Damnation. But for the believer who says, you know what, I, I know I should be doing that, but I'm going to go do this. Aren't there consequences? There's always consequences of sin. You know, for a believer to hang their head and walk around with shame and guilt, it shouldn't be that way. We are victorious in Christ. But when we know that, man, instead of keeping my eyes on the Lord, I put my eyes on this stuff, and I've missed the mark. Church, we have a Lord who says here, all who the Father gives me will come to me, and Jesus says, I will never cast them out. He doesn't look and go, not good enough, bink, not good enough, bink. Because you were hand-picked. You were hand-selected by the Father. Hand-picked. Think about those who have been adopted in, in, in this world. And they, they're upset because they think, well, I don't know my real parents. And, and they go through, there's just these internal battles they go through. But to think that someone hand-picked them, someone chose to bring them into a family, Someone chose to love them, to give them an experience of having a family. That's what our Father has done with us. He's hand-picked us to love us, to express his love to us. Jesus continues in verse 38. He says, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me. Guess who that is? If you're a brother or sister in the Lord Jesus, if you have been sealed with the Spirit, that's you. That he's not going to let anybody come and take you. There's no way you're going to get out of there. He says, right here. He says, I'm going to lose none of them. He says, I'll raise them up on that last day. They have assurance that there'll be resurrection from the dead. Verse 40, he says, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And there's a promise again, and I will raise him up on the last day. So what does it take for that assurance? To come to Jesus. To believe in who he is. To turn. The word is repent. Turn from yourself. Turn to him in faith in him. To trust in him. And the Bible says that at that time, at the same time all that's going on, there's also behind the scene God's working, causing you to be born again. Giving you a new heart and a new desire. It is an amazing thing. The assurance that we have in Jesus. In chapter 10 of John, verse 28 and 29, Jesus says, I give them eternal life, 
and they'll never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Fellow believer, are you ever tempted? Because you know there's an enemy of our soul, right? There is a tempter. And he comes to put stuff in front of us, try to lure us all over the place. First of all, we're no longer in bondage to sin. We have freedom to turn from that. We don't have to go there. But we also know here that there's nothing, no tempter, no one can take us from our Father. But there's security there. A handful of chapters later, Jesus, in his high priestly prayer, chapter 17, verse 9, look at the way he's praying. He says, I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but I'm praying for those who you've given me, for they are yours. He's interceding. A few verses later, he says in verse 12, While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scriptures might be fulfilled. Jesus, there's security in Christ. Now, someone said something that was, was needs to be repeated earlier this morning. Someone said, the one thing that we never want to do is give assurance to somebody who is not truly converted. See, if we tell somebody, look, if you've just repeated a prayer and you said, you know, Jesus, I love you and forgive me and, you know, you're awesome. And then you tell them, hey, you're saved forever because you said that prayer. You don't know that. You don't know if there was any regeneration in them. You have no idea if true, genuine conversion has taken place in their life. The evidence of conversion is sealing of the Spirit that you can see the change of life. You see the fruit of repentance. That the person truly has gone from darkness to light. It doesn't mean I'm looking at all of you, you're looking at me. It doesn't mean we're walking perfectly. But we're definitely not walking like we used to. Our life doesn't look like it used to look before Christ. There's evidence of a change. If there's no evidence of change, there's no evidence of salvation. If that's you this morning, your question, you know what? I don't know if there's change then maybe you need to examine yourself and see whether you're in the faith. And here's the beautiful part. It's a one-step process. Come to Jesus. Repent. Turn to Christ. Trust in Him. Jesus says there's nothing that will go on when you are in Christ, when you are His, there's no way you're going to be snatched away. It doesn't matter what comes in this world, what suffering, what trials, what tribulations come. You are His. Paul the Apostle will close with this passage here. Paul the Apostle says in Romans, Chapter 8, starting in verse 31. He says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who could be against us? He says, "Who He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died, and more than that, who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? For as it's written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Look at verse 37. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all 
creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Church, that is glorious news. You going through a difficult time? Are you a believer here this morning going through a difficult time and thinking, man, I don't know if I'm going to be able to endure this. I don't think I'm going to make it through the, to the end in my faith. Realize this, Jesus says, look, I am the one who started it and I'm the one who will finish it. That I will keep you from beginning to end and we will complete this. If God is for us, who can be against us? Church, this morning we looked at Jesus Christ. He is the bread of heaven. He is the bread of life. And all who come to him and believe in him will receive eternal life. And everyone who turns to Christ in genuine faith, who turns to Christ in genuine faith, will be eternally secure because Christ is the guarantor of that. Father, we thank you for this glorious news this morning. God, what reassuring hope that we have in Christ. Lord, I know it's, it's your will, your desire to use your word to bring forth the gospel, that people would respond to it, to the truth of it. We know it's your spirit that empowers it. And I pray in this place this morning, if anyone is to hear the words of eternal life, that today they would turn to Christ. Today they would receive him. Today they would choose to follow him. That today you would do a miracle in their life, causing them to be born again and sealing them with your spirit. Father, for the rest of us in here who have been sealed, God, thank you for the reminder, the assurance that we have an eternal hope. That it's not just today that we get to experience this, but it's forever. That we are yours forevermore. That nothing will snatch us away from Christ. No one can take us away. Nothing can separate us from your love. God, you are good. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.